0: Greetings in Our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a covenant renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: A call to confession is from Proverbs chapter 20 verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. Words are powerful. With words, God made heaven and the earth. Words can bring life and words can bring death. Jesus Christ is the word. And God expects us to respect words and their power. Vows in scripture are nothing to be taken lightly. And this is because God holds us to our words. Men are judged by the words that proceed from their mouths. This is because words proceed from the heart. If the heart is pure and clean, the words are good and full of life. If the heart is dark and dirty, the words defile the man. The real onerousness of this is that words are cheap in one very real sense. They come out at the release of a breath and a wag of the tongue. The time it takes to say a word is very short, but once the word is out, its effects are lasting because there's no bottling up the word after it comes out. How many times in our lives have, they, have we wished that we could take something back? How many times have we seen the power of words only to realize that it's too late to take them back when we've been inflicted pain or to regain the confidence that we've betrayed? On the other hand, vows are blessings. By them, we can can be held accountable for our actions or called to obedience or we may otherwise have wandered. Words and promises give us surety to know that we should be able to trust the person who vows, whether it's a spouse who vows fidelity at the wedding or a church leader who avows faithfulness at ordination or even in a business transaction where one party promises To pay for the goods received. The warning and the wisdom of this proverb is that we must not be rash in our words or promises. It is a snare to make a promise and renege in the future, after you slow down enough to count the cost. When that happens, you're too late and your honor is already on the line. Instead, be wise Be slow to speak and take your time. There's wisdom in taking a night to sleep on it. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing to. Saw the work of Philip the evangelist and the water of the gospel on the desert road in, the, in his ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch. So last week the gospel brought water to the dry places. This week we'll see the light of the gospel in the darkness of Saul's heart. It will shine there. And we and we were introduced to Saul during the stoning of Stephen, where he stood by consenting to the murder. Then he got busy persecuting the church, dragging off men and women to prison. Our text today is the story of Saul's conversion. This is a powerful story, and it's very important. In fact, Luke includes the story of Saul's conversion three times in the book of Acts. First here, and then the Apostle Paul himself gives his testimony when he's speaking to the crowds in Jerusalem in chapter 22. He told the story to explain his ministry. Again in chapter 26, Paul gives his testimony in his presentation of the gospel to King Agrippa and Festus, rulers of Israel. And each time the story starts with how far gone he was. With how great of an enemy to the gospel he had become. Every time when Saul's testimony is given, it starts with the depths to which he'd fallen. Acts 9 verses 1 and 2. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is the introduction to Saul's conversion here we see why he was on the Damascus Road. Saul was never a slouch, he was never lazy. On the contrary, he was a scholar and he was a zealot. He would have had to have been. He was a young man and already at such a young age, he had accomplished very much. In Acts 26, Paul tells us that he voted against the Christians when they were taken before the Sanhedrin. This would have meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land of Israel, the highest Israeli court. He had the equivalent of two PhDs by the time he was 21. Here we read that he had the gumption to solicit authority from the high priest to persecute the church, even to foreign lands. And he was willing to take the persecution beyond the national borders of Israel to Damascus. What we know about Damascus, and as far as we know, Damascus is the oldest city in the world. The oldest city in the world that's been continually lived in. It lies 140 miles, mostly north and a little east of Jerusalem at the convergence of two rivers, and it was an oasis on the edge of the desert. It also was an important city because it lay at the convergence of several trade routes, one to the sea through the port of Sidon, one to the north towards Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey one to the east from the deserts of Arabia, and one to the south along the King's Highway, going through Palestine and down to Egypt. Damascus was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. Josephus tells us there were thousands of Jews who had settled there. And we see that Saul was coming to the synagogues of Damascus to find any who were of the way, who had from his perspective, infiltrated Judaism there. Christianity is called the way several times in Acts. And by that, it means that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. By all accounts, Saul was a man on a mission, though he was willing to do what it took to accomplish his goals he even says that he felt compelled to do this in acts 26 verse 9 when he's giving his testimony there he says indeed i myself thought i must do many things contrary to the name of jesus of nazareth saul felt compelled to persecute the church This is similar to what Jesus had prophesied to the disciples before his death. He said that whoever kills you will think that he does the work of God. Few things are more dangerous than misguided religious zealots. At least three times in Acts, the fact that Saul persecuted both men and women is mentioned. His persecution was a blind rage. He was out for blood. He was going to take it wherever he could find it. And he didn't care if the offenders were weak or helpless. He didn't even care if they were right. Remember Stephen's murder? Saul was there. He saw the failed accusations against Stephen. He saw the stopping of ears and the closing of minds to the truth of Stephen's gospel and defense. So now we know why he was on the Damascus road. But now something happens that Saul could never have guessed in a million years. He's about to trade his figurative blindness, his rage and his closed mind, for actual blindness due to the blinding... Illumination of God. Acts 9 verses 3 through 9. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Here we see the blinding light of God's revelation to a soul darkened by sin. Saul probably saw himself as some sort of a, a savior, he was a white knight. Riding in to save the nation from the terrible evils of heresy. In his mind, he was the light bearer. Ready to reveal the wickedness of the followers of Jesus Christ. But God had a better plan. A glorious plan. Here we see King Jesus vanquishing his foe by turning him. There are two ways to vanquish your foe. You can either kill them, or you can turn them, cause them to join your side. The problem with Saul's plan was that he didn't have the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was enthroned by God and sat at God's right hand. Jesus was God in the flesh. Saul's problem was that he didn't believe the gospel. And the gospel is true. But part of the gospel is this. God intervenes. Saul's encounter is reminiscent of Abraham's and Moses' and, and Isaiah's. Here he is, walking into Damascus at midday, ready to take on the church, and God knocks him and his companions to the ground with a light brighter than the sun. Moreover, Saul sees Jesus and hears his words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God intervenes, because he's gracious and good and merciful. Our God is supreme. And when he desires to reveal himself, he cannot be ignored. And what an accusation he brings. Can you imagine being accused of persecuting God? It's interesting that in this testimony, in this message of the gospel, because that's what Saul receives. He receives nothing less than the gospel direct from our Lord himself. It's interesting that in this testimony, the gospel is summed up in Jesus' words, Why are you persecuting me? That's the gospel. Why are you persecuting me? Consider that. Here we have the sharp and direct accusation against sin. The gospel always points out sin. You're persecuting me. But we also have the revelation of Jesus as Lord from heaven, a light shining down from the sky, knocking them flat on the ground, and the voice of Jesus coming directly from the sky. And moreover, Jesus extends the hope of peace and forgiveness that always comes with the gospel. The gospel leaves no room for sin. The gospel leaves no room for pride. It always knocks that completely flat, destroys it, and kills it. But it does bring the promise and the hope of life and forgiveness. Jesus isn't striking Saul dead. He isn't doing what Saul's doing to the church either. He's not throwing him into prison or persecuting him. Well, at least not yet. Jesus is God of heaven and earth who has the authority and the power to obliterate Saul. And yet he shows mercy and grace. Saul hated Jesus. He hated Jesus. He thought, I must get in the way of this Jesus of Nazareth. He hated Jesus. And he thought that he loved God. He thought that he was God's man. He thought that he was doing God's work. And now, suddenly, he's forced to do a little soul searching. His mind must have been racing. And he comes out with, Who are you? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here he was, thinking he is God's man doing God's work, and God comes down and accuses him of persecuting him. Who who are you? Saul needs revelation here, and Jesus graciously reveals himself. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This is gracious on several levels. First, it's revelation. God has shown Saul truth, ultimate, absolute truth, and he's delivered him from his blindness to that truth up to this point. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, and he is not the enemy of God. That is a truth that every man must come to acknowledge. That's gracious that Jesus reveals himself this way. Second, Jesus reveals that Saul is injuring himself. All sin is a rejection of life and an embrace of death. But Saul was heaping up condemnation on himself in the heavenly court by his abuse of Christ's body, the church. In Jesus' words, he is kicking against the goats. Goats were sharp, pointed sticks that they stuck on the front of ox carts. And they would keep the oxen from kicking the cart. And so when the, the ox would kick the cart, it would poke the back of their legs. And when the ox is first hooked up to the cart, it doesn't know how this works. They're kind of spunky, and they decide... They don't like being hooked up, and they know that there's something behind them, so they kick at it. (laughs) And then it would sometimes kick, and, and and it would prick itself, and it'd get angry. And then it would kick again, and harder, because it was angry. And that would only make it worse. It would injure itself. Obviously, it would make it worse. However, that experience, that pain, that suffering would bring enlightenment to the ox, It would soon learn that it it doesn't pay to kick the cart. It doesn't feel good. It's not worthwhile. And it usually only takes once or twice for the ox to figure this out. But once it's figured out, then the ox is useful for doing the work of pulling the cart. Saul's abuse of the church is like that. He's railing and raging. But he can't defeat the argument of the gospel. He loves his theology, but he can't grasp what his scriptures point to. He needs God. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the whole scripture is all about. Men need God, men need forgiveness, men need righteousness. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the gospel. We need life because we don't have it without him giving it to us. And Saul was trying to to achieve God's ends. He was trying to be the man God wanted him to be without accepting the way that God has for that. The way of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' grace is here to fix that. Jesus says, I am Jesus. And you're kicking against the goats. The only and the appropriate response is what Saul says. He realizes his own position and humbly asks for guidance. What do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the only response to the gospel. Jesus is king of heaven and earth, and we are nothing. And unless we acknowledge him, and he gives us power and life and spirit, we are nothing. And we're deserving, justly deserving of his wrath and eternal death. Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus continues on with his grace and gives him his mission. He doesn't leave Saul there wondering what to do. He says, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. That's a message of hope. That's a love. Saul's killing the church, killing the Christians, persecuting the body of Christ. And Jesus identifies directly with his people. When he asks Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? He's not. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians or the church? He says, me, I am the church. I am with and among my people. What do you want me to do, Saul says. And then Jesus gives him his mission. Go into the city. You will be told what to do. And Saul arose. But he had a new problem, he was blind, he was blind, his sight was taken away from him. And now he is humbled, he must depend on others to lead him into town. Here he thought he was a knight in white shining armor bringing the light against the heresy and he's forced to prove that he's in darkness and must follow others lead the light of the revelation of jesus christ was literally blinding for him and yet though he was blind he now saw what he could not see before he saw more he saw real truth moreover he took this thing very seriously this is evident in his fast he fasted from food and drink for three days He did not eat or drink for three days. And the imagery here is rich. Like Jesus in his tomb for three days. Or like Jonah in the fish for three days. Paul spends three days in the dark in a foreign city without food or drink. But in that death, Jesus has more grace for Saul. Verses 10 through 12. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. God gives Saul blindness and he gives Ananias a vision. He responds promptly, here I am, Lord. And God tells him that Saul has also received a vision. And the Ananias is to go to Saul to give him back his sight. And understandably, Ananias has reservations about this mission. Verses 13 to 14. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Nonetheless, the Lord reveals to Ananias the mission that he has for Saul, verses 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Before, Saul thought that he was doing what he, what he must do. He thought he was doing what he was supposed to do, what God expected from him. That's what Saul thought he was doing when he was persecuting the church. But now, God is revealing to him what he really expects him to do. And he reveals to Ananias... The glory of Saul's mission. Here we have prefigured the illustrious career of the Apostle Paul. Jesus has a plan for Saul's life. And Saul was about to learn what that was. He was a chosen vessel to bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. As we know now, Saul was to go on and write almost a third of the New Testament. And he's to be the primary character in chapters 13 to 28 of this book, of the book of Acts. His work in the establishment of the church is indispensable. But up till now, the opposite was his aim. However, God is good and gracious, and Ananias is obedient. So God grants sight and peace to Saul, verses 17 through 19. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. God is good. Ananias comes to give sight and true peace to the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And now instead of enmity with God, Saul has been given the Spirit of God. Now instead of persecuting Jesus, Jesus lives in him. Saul's sight is restored. So now not only does he have the light of revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth, and that all men must bow down and serve him. Now he's received the light of his eyes again. He's able to see. He's able to, to go and do what Jesus has for him to do. He's joined to the church in baptism. And then he strengthened with food and fellowship with the believers in Damascus. Next week we'll see how this turned immediately into Saul preaching Jesus in the very synagogues for which he was planning on coming to town in order to destroy the church. But that's for next week. Saul's conversion is central to the story of the growth of the church. In many ways, it is a microcosm of what God does and is doing in the world. How does God work in our world? God takes his enemies and makes them his children. That's what God's doing in the world. God takes his enemies and makes them his children. God intervenes. God intervenes in our lives. God comes down into our world and he reveals himself as he truly is to men who don't have eyes to see or hearts to understand. He gives us those eyes and those hearts. And then when we see him as he really is, God shows us his grace and mercy and he calls us to come and to receive his free gifts just like he did here with Saul. So Saul's conversion is central to the story of the growth of the church, and it's a microcosm of what God is doing in our world. But it's also an example of what man's role is in the midst of God's work. We are prone, like Saul was, to think that we know God's mind to think that we can see and understand what he's doing. And in our pride, we rail against him and his decreed will. Saul was an extreme example of this. He hated God, and he hated that God had a hold on him. And so he persecuted God, the church. His life was characterized by, as he will later write, the works of the flesh. Spite, envy, anger, hatred, murder, lies. Saul's conversion is a type of us. And like Saul, we are also subject to God's revelation. If we grew up as unbelievers, we probably have our own Damascus Road experience that time when God shone his light down on us and there was nothing for it but to fall down and humbly petition him Lord what do you want me to do God reveals himself when he reveals himself as he is that's the only response what do I do If we were fortunate enough to grow up in the church and never not know Jesus as Lord, then the change is not as stark. But even here in the church, there's frequently the experience which is very similar to Saul's Damascus Road moment, a coming to greater light, to greater knowledge, and to greater understanding of God. Sometimes this happens when we suddenly understand some elusive doctrine. Or we grasp a hint of the grandeur of God and His salvation. The power and the ultimacy of Him and what He's doing in our world. God is light, and God is infinite. Therefore, his light is blinding and his illumination is overwhelming. If you've never known a moment of his revelation in which your breath was taken away, then pray for it. Pray that God will overwhelm you with his truth and his light and his spirit. That you may be filled to such a degree that there's nothing for it, but for you to fall down at his feet in service and gratitude. Pray that you'll be filled with a message for the world like Paul was. That you would grasp that message, the message of the gospel, the message of divine love, and that you would proclaim that message in every area of your life. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray.
0: This morning is all about revelation.
1: About blindness being exchanged for vision and sight. Our God is a God of light and truth. He desires that we perceive. We are to know and to be known by Him. He wants us to have understanding and comprehension. But the only way for us to know is to know Jesus. God reveals Jesus to us in many ways. His creation reveals Jesus. His Word reveals Jesus. And as we saw today, Jesus reveals Himself by His Spirit. God has lighted His light and He has set Jesus on the hill at His right hand until all the world will be filled with the knowledge of God and every enemy will be subdued by Him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Gloriously, that kingdom and Jesus' Lordship is bound up in his incarnation and in his death and resurrection. Which is to say, it's bound up in the grace and mercy that is offered to us in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is King. But Jesus is gracious he offers free forgiveness of sins and he offers a glorious celebratory feast and fellowship with the saints in the peace that he gives us in this meal Christ's Father broken for us let's pray
0: thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.